HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. For more information, visit mofad.org. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. All in the Industry is produced by Heritage Radio Network, a nonprofit, member-supported radio station devoted to all things food. Help keep HRN alive by becoming a member today. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart to donate. Do it now. to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. We're coming to you live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is Wednesday, July 27th, and this is the 113th episode of the series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talents in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is a top restaurant consultant, and I will introduce him in a moment. First, as I do in every show, I will start out with my PR tip. Later, we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to stay relevant. Keep up with the times and with what people want. Be willing to learn, grow, and adapt. Perhaps you will find it valuable to take some classes or go back to school. Keeping your skill set fresh is important for remaining essential in the workplace. So remember, relevancy is relevant. That's my tip today. Now, I'm very honored to have my guest here. It is Clark Wolf. He is the founder and president of Clark Wolf Company, a New York City and Sonoma County-based food and restaurant consulting firm. Clark has more than 30 years of experience in the food industry and is considered one of America's top restaurant consultants. He is a member of LinkedIn's Influentials, a columnist for Forbes.com, and a contributing editor to Cook's Magazine. He is also a speaker, giving lectures around the world on food trends, restaurants, marketing, and more. He has written books, he has created tableware, and he is the host in te- for, a te- for television and radio. And in 2009, Clark was inducted into the Hall of Fame of the James Beard Foundation. And that's just a brief bio for Clark. I'm going to 
stop now and say hi. Welcome to Heritage Radio. It's wonderful to be here, Sherry. Thanks for having me. Oh, well, my pleasure. I am very honored to have you here. I feel I've known you for a while, followed a bit of your career, not not going all the way back to when you first started, but that's where I want to go back to, to see how did you get into this industry? No, it's kind of funny. My uh, undergraduate degree was in English literature. I was a commuter kid, and I went to San Francisco State University and ended up studying English literature because... I needed and I could only afford to learn how to learn. Uh, And that's what has been through my entire career, the focus of my life. I love to learn and I love to learn about things that are important to me and to other people. And there is nothing more important than food. Without it, I mean, it's the largest industry in the world. It's the only thing we can't live without. It has the most, uh, uh, the richest, the broadest collection of social languages and of economic construct. I got to help 20 years ago this year. I had the honor of helping Dr. Mary Nessel at NYU create the country's first food studies program. It didn't exist when I was going to school. Maybe that's what I would have taken. You can study history, culture, sensory evaluation, biology, chemistry, politics, economics, you know, international relations, anything you want through food. And actually, it's a, I guess it's a liberal arts and sciences uh, kind of a thing where you can get a BS and a master's or a PhD. And you can right. use it everywhere, right? Right. Well... In 1998, when I moved to New York City, I started at NYU's food studies program. So thank you for creating that. And I have not completed my degree. What? No, I have 12 <laughs> credits. I took a leave of absence. Well, I'm sorry. This does not count as independent study. I know. No. I. But I'll tell you, it it got my foot in the door and in the right direction. And, and I give it a tremendous amount of credit for getting me where I am today. One of my instructors was Mitchell Davis. Yeah, I mean, I met Beer people Foundation, right. and I, 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 I didn't know what I wanted to do when I moved here. I knew I loved food and restaurants. So um, thank you for creating that program. I think it's fabulous. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's, it was a natural outgrowth of the other things I was doing. I'll, I'll go back to the beginning. I'm first-generation American. Both my parents were born in Europe. My mother was a concert pianist, and my father sold hardware. So in other words, I had lofty uh, uh, um, aspirations and a sense of culture, but we were very blue-collar, modest people in the San Fernando Valley with a great apricot tree, Wonderful Meyer lemons by the back door uh, and tangerines when we shouldn't have had them, you know, and beautiful roses. And so I had those benchmarks and I got to live in Southern California where you waited until the middle of the summer. You didn't have the first watermelon. You had the middle of the height of the season where it was not only the least expensive, but the most delicious. So I had some of these benchmarks and my mother was a rotten cook. I mean, bless her heart. She was good at a lot of other things. But when I got to college and lived on... um, Macaroni and cheese, craft dinner, 19 cents a box. That's kind of the time frame, how old right. I am, actually. <laughs> um, one day I was reading the San Francisco Chronicle, and there was a story about Dungeness crab. And they said to buy a crab freshly steamed and flatten this newspaper and grab a hammer, preferably a wooden mallet, and smack it, you know, and get a lemon and a baguette and some mayonnaise and some Wente Brothers Chenin Blanc, you know, 269 a bottle, and, and have a meal. And it was kind of an epiphany. It was... When I realized that a simple meal like that in my bad rental in the wrong part of San Francisco, which now goes for bazillions, uh, could be life-changing, could make me feel on top of the world. And so I kind of thought, hmm, this is something I want to know more about. I was a waiter on the railroad between Oakland and Chicago, often the only white person working, and got to learn a lot about American food from the old African-American cooks who cook for us 
much better food than we sold and served, got to learn how to serve 600 people in 48 seats in under two hours at 90 miles an hour. Wow. Everything else has been easier. <laughs> but then I started going to, to restaurants when I got to Chicago, the pump room and some of those wonderful places. And when I came back, I ended up getting a job from a sign in a window at a little cheese and wine shop at the base of Knob Hill in San Francisco, where I opened a shop that was owned by a company that went chapter 11 the second week of my employment. I had $200 and 32 cheeses. Yeah. Wow. And, yeah. So I got to learn what a business does and does not need. That company went chapter 11 and eventually sold the store. I ran it for two and a half years, sometimes making display in the window out of packing material and a sense of humor that ended up in the newspaper. You know, I learned how to do it. And I learned over the counter from our customers what cheeses were. And I learned from having to do it myself how to sell them. So then how, what was the next step in getting more involved in the restaurant industry? And how did you end up in New York City. Well, well part-time in New York City. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, I Full moved time. to New York City. Okay. Uh, what happened was one day the door at the um, cheese shop darkened, and I looked up and there was James Beard. He, yes. He had been living half the year at the top of Knob Hill at the Stanford Court Hotel. And he walked in, and I, of course I knew who he was, and he said, my doctor says I shouldn't even walk into a store like this. Do you have any Appenzeller? You know what I mean? We started to be friends. We chatted. A year or so later, his um, one of his assistants said, Mr. Beard remembers you and would like you to come to dinner at the Stanford Court. If he gets tired at 10 o'clock and sends you home, don't be insulted. At a quarter to 1 a.m., as we were having my first or second Glenlivet Scotch Neat, uh, we became friends, and he said, come tomorrow and we'll really gossip. So I ended up, after that, with James Beard as my friend, bizarrely enough, and here was this magical man who really knew about food. I, I helped open the Oakville Grocery in 1980, which at the time was where we brought arugula to California, where we resuscitated fresh mozzarella making in California. It had stopped, where we began to feature these things at the same time that Dean and DeLuca and Balducci's was thriving here in New York. The Oakville Grocery drew from the farms in Sonoma and Napa and Marin and Mendocino above it that had been legendary forever. This is Sonoma County is where Luther Burbank developed 980 fruits and vegetables and flowers that we rely on today. I mean, he developed the russet potato even before he moved there, but that's where he said it was the Eden of all the earth. So here I was gathering these things, and I did that for two and a half years, and then Barbara Kafka, then the food editor of Vogue, invited me to come to New York and help her open an American food store in 1982, well before its time, and unfortunately named Star Spangled Foods. What a horrible <laughs> name, yeah. But I, I did that for a year, and then I, then I went on, uh, on a series of lectures all over the country where I did tastings and seminars for food and wines from France and the foods of England, because American chefs, the professionals, 50-year-old, uh, accomplished guys, and very few women, didn't know what fresh ingredients were in those days. They couldn't get them. They only had it in a can or frozen or whatever. So I was doing olive oil tastings, and I was doing wild mushroom tastings, and, and then eventually started doing consulting because I was asked to help this wonderful man on the Upper East Side, Joseph Santo, do Arizona 206 in 1985, where... The handwriting, uh, the logo is my handwriting with a, a, a marking pen, with two marking pens, actually. Very and cool. The, yeah, and this new thing called Color Xerox. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to do it myself. You know what I mean? Yeah. I learned to do it, and I wrote. Hands on. Uh, yeah, and I handwrote the menu every single day for six months until they developed a software in those days where they could take my handwriting and turn it into a typeface. I mean, you know, I got to learn these things hands-on, um, working every day like a dog, and I loved it. 
Yeah, well, you you have a ton of experience, I know, back then in working with different restaurant concepts. How did you get introduced to Lowe's and the hotels? You know, I was working with, I got to be the kid at the development of the American Institute of Wine and Food that Julia Child and Robert Mondavi and Richard Graff, the late uh, uh, winemaker at Shalom Vineyards, had started. And I was the, uh, the grocer. And at the same time, this is when Cook's Magazine did the first Who's Who of Cooking in America Awards. And I helped, I got to help Christopher Kimball uh, collect the, the foie gras, which was D'Artagnan even then. We have them now, but even then, yeah. right? And and Tsar Nikolai Caviar, and I'm trying to think of what else. Maybe Tom Chino's Farm, where Alice Waters gets her stuff. And a guy called Jeff Hivid, if you can imagine, he was a forager. We're talking about the early 80s. Amazing. Right, right. So I, I was, again, I was this guy who, it, it wasn't my doing. I just happened to be in the midst of these people who turned out to be Alice Waters and Ruth Reichel and, and, and uh, Marion Cunningham, who wrote the Fanny Farmer cookbooks. These were the people around me tasting for Joseph Phelps, who owned the Oakville Grocery, all the things that we wanted to put into the ultimate pantry. So at the end of the day, at the end of two and a half years with those people, I was this guy who knew all the olive oil makers, all the cheese makers, and all the rest of it. And when I came to California, to New York, I mean, it had, and it still does, have such great currency, doesn't it? Knowing where things come from, who makes them, why they make them, and what their benchmark flavors are supposed to be. Uh, it, it's a gift. I feel very, very grateful that I had that experience and was able to bring it into my career. Yeah, so... So with Lowe's, did that oh, come yeah. after? Well, so uh, what happened was I was run- I founded the AIWF, American Institute of Wine and Food Chapter here in okay. New York, which became the largest. We did a lot of events at uh, uh, the Lowe's Regency Hotel on Park Avenue. Okay. And Jonathan Tisch said, I need some help with my restaurants. And I liked him and he liked me. And at the end of the day, no matter how fancy everybody got, John and I liked the same food. We liked roast chicken and really good French fries and a white burgundy. And so I worked for Lowe's Hotels for 12 years, which is a long time. Very long. And I was the inside-outside consulting food and beverage vice president, I'm basically, traveling all over the country, actually, to Monte Carlo and uh, um, someplace else, but I can't remember where. I mean, you must have seen a tremendous amount of change happening between food programs and hotels. Or you are a part of it. Well, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, every time I would talk to the late Michael Batterberry, who started Food Arts and Food Wine Magazine, yes, and I would I say, we're going to do this and this and this. And he said, that's seminal. Like, oh, my gosh, that's, you know, turning point. And because I had grown up in this other environment, uh, the Oakville Grocery in California mm-hmm. and Alice Water, I only knew how to do things that were the next step. You know what I mean? I, I wasn't really interested in being trained to do something at a hotel or restaurant school that I would repeat over and over again. Mind you, those skills are all very valuable. But for me, what I like to do, what what I'm comfortable with, is helping to launch the next step in something, which means gathering the information and then maybe doing something that wants doing. Yeah, and you you were a restaurateur. You had a... What was it here? The Markham, right? <laughs> the Markham. Actually, okay. I was a partner in a restaurant. Yes, it was one of those okay. things where somebody that I was involved with said, I'm going to do a restaurant. And, you know, it was one of those where if I didn't do it, I was not going to see anybody anymore. Right. And I decided, you know, what the heck? I, I should do it. And uh, the Markham was named after a wonderful farmer and a peach, actually. Ah. The Markham peach. And, and uh, Thomas Markham, I think his name is. He was a poet who moved from California to, to the Northeast. It was, you yeah. know, it worked. And it was in a townhouse on Lower Fifth Avenue. What was interesting is that it was naturalistic, um, modern American uh, bistro food, basically. 
very ingredient driven and very low key, uh, understated, and the whole place was understated. Ruth Reichel was the restaurant critic of the New York Times at the time. Now, I grew up with Ruth. Uh, I, I saw her for the first time at the Swallow in Berkeley, the natural food place she worked at. And I knew her at the Oakville. So I knew her palate. Her palate and mine were very similar. We had a similar you know, background mm-hmm. and exposure. So if she didn't like what I was doing, I was lying to myself. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Have you ever had something where somebody you really respect comes right. in? Right. And, you know, we, for the first two times she came, we didn't look at each other because, you know, you, you, you pretend that it's not your cousin who's the restaurant critic, right? <laughs> but you have to be polite, and, right? And finally, the third time she said, are you going to say hello to me? And I said, yes. She gave us the best. If I could have described to her what I wanted to do in a restaurant, that's what she wrote. And we never spoke about it. She just got it. You know what I mean? And I felt, oh, my goodness, I really do know how to do this. And uh, the greatest honor was when she asked, she brought her family, her husband and her, and her son, for Christmas. Uh, they wanted to come to our restaurant on their nickel. She wouldn't let me bring them anything uh, because that's what they loved. So I got to have that experience. Um, you know, my, uh, the, the European partner was Swiss. They didn't, there was some disagreement. We had a facility so that I could press a button and get out of it and sell my part, you know what I mean, and be done. Would I have stayed forever if it had gone on? Yes, I loved it. Um, but after two and a half years of the greatest reviews ever, I got out cleanly and happily with a packed house and um, am glad I did it. I really am because I know now uh, that I can. I mean, I, I did a food shop. I've done a couple of those and I, I helped other restaurants and hotels all over the country, all over the world. But I loved, you know, I'd come back from traveling for five days take a shower, put on a new shirt and go in and pour sparkling water and then have the guest look up and go, oh, it's you. Well, right. you know, yes, you help, right? You, you don't think about it. You just do it. Excellent. Okay, we're going to take a little break here. going to come back and talk more with Clark. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. Hi, this is Peter Kim, the executive director of MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. We're a nonprofit founded by Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues here on the Heritage Radio Network, and we want to take people on a learning adventure through the world of food. We just opened MOFAD Lab, our gallery space at 62 Bayard Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where we are currently showing Flavor, Making It and Faking It. Flavor features some very cool sensory interaction. Flavor tablets deliver tastings of vanilla and umami, and the Willy Wonka-inspired smell synth lets you compose over half a million different flavors. So come on by and visit MoFad Lab. We're open five days a week, and tickets are $5 for kids and $10 for adults. Learn more about the Museum of Food and Drink at MoFad.org. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is top restaurant consultant Clark Wolf. We've been talking about his past and how he, he, he his amazing experience. I mean, you've done so much. Uh, I know I need uh, like a 10-hour show <laughs> to get through it all. So, um, But moving ahead, let's talk about what you're doing now with, with your company. I mean, 
what type of services are you providing and taking all this vast experience you have and applying it today? Well, I'm very grateful to be uh, helpful in situations uh, of all kinds. I like little businesses and I like big businesses. The thing I love about food is if you're smart, if you understand it, every piece of the business is a little business, right? When you go to a restaurant, every item on the menu is its own little business. And sometimes you got to get rid of one and add another one or move them around so that they all go together very well. I love the strategy. I love development. Um, Right now, I've been working with Seaside, Florida. Uh, That's the legendary, gorgeous, uh, new urbanist design town on the Gulf of Mexico that was used as a backdrop uh, backdrop for the Truman Show, the movie with Jim Carrey, where they you know right. they film him his whole life since birth, right? Yeah, I What's, remember it. Yeah, it's a real place. It's gorgeous and wonderful. And uh, I've been working there since 2008. In that time, we've developed the food and beverage uh, sales in the town from 14.6 to 34 million. And this is during the Gulf spill and the recession all the way through. There's a, there's a collection, there's a, a row of Airstream trailers that sell fresh raw juice, uh, barbecue, uh, uh, grass-fed hot dogs. Um, uh, there's one that does, it's a 14-foot trailer. It does a million dollars a year in grilled cheese sandwiches. The line, it was 98 degrees last week when I was there. There was a line down the, the block. It's, it's about the dynamic. It's about the collection of it. There's, mm-hmm. and there's a specialty food market, and there's a, a wonderful restaurant in the middle of it called Great Southern. And what I like to do is help people be successful in what they do. And, try to, and I work on behalf of the developer. He pays me. He brings me down once or twice a year. Earlier on, it was more. And we talk about what people might do and how editing and directing, for example, there was a place called Roly Poly. It was a bad franchise. $7.80 average check for lunch and 147 permutations. Every one of them probably terrible. I walk in and there's this old guy there and I say, that's a lot of sandwiches. What's good? And he says, right? What idiot came up with 147? I mean, it was awful. <laughs> I found out that the owner's wife had a friend who had a shrimp boat that went out into the deep water in the Gulf of Mexico. It is now called Shrimp Shack, and not $7.85 average check. It's $26 average check for lunch, and it's a shack. And they have Royal Reds, which are these incredible large dark shrimp, and they do them simply. And and when there was the spill, all of their oysters were uh, sent to a lab, and you got the the, the results that they were clean. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And the owner, the uh, developer, Robert Davis, had built this beautiful uh, gazebo, really, on the dune. And I convinced him to let them use the gazebo just for seating, you know, no service. You, you'd buy your stuff at the shrimp shack and then go on up to the top of, of the of the dune and sit on this beautiful thing and watch the water. And Travel and Leisure, the travel issue, used it on the cover, on, on the cover of their, you know, and there it was, the dune and the shrimp. And, and you know, it wasn't a, a big old marketing thing. It was that the woman who was, the, I guess, the food editor, maybe the photo editor, loved coming to Seaside, loved the simplicity of it. So it's all about trying to help people do what's at the core of their business in a way that will be really good food. I really believe in good food and profitable. I mean, I'm a business consultant first and foremost. So I love to have that whole global kind of a thing like that. I'm working actually on the, with the Four Seasons Company in Calistoga, not far from, I have a hundred year old loggers cabin in the Redwoods in Northwestern Sonoma County. Yeah, I live there. At, at, taking a house guest, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> right. and, and I also I have an, I, 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 that's my place. And here I rent a, an apartment in a Silver Towers on 42nd Street, west of 11th Avenue. So I'm in the middle of Hell's Kitchen or in the middle of the Redwoods. And I do that for a lot of reasons. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm lucky. We're all lucky to be in the food and, and beverage business because 
everything we learn for our career enriches our lives if we do it right, right? I mean, that's, what I, that's why I fell in love with all this. It not just enriches our lives, but the people around us. So I'm very involved in the community there and, of course, through NYU here. Um, and I'm working on a general store. I did the Oakville Grocery in the mm-hmm. Napa Valley across from Mondavi. And now in Calistoga, year after next, I'll be doing this 1,400-square-foot, very edited Northern California ingredients, best of the world from all over the world, general store on the Silverado Trail for the, of the Four Seasons Company. So, you know, large and small. Um, I'm currently working on the redevelopment of the Montauk Yacht Club out of the end of Long Island uh, and, and their food and beverage stuff. So all kinds of different yeah. things, large and small. Yeah, well, you, you, you answered my question then before I asked it because on my last show I had on Julie Reiner, uh, it was episode 112, and she's the cocktail maven and co-owner of Flatiron Lounge and Clover Club and Leanda. She wanted to know what's your preference on consulting, more high-end spots or laid-back, relaxed restaurants. So you kind of like it all. Well, you know, it's, it's, those aren't the two choices. I mean, what's interesting is that I'm currently helping right. Fosun, who has that amazing building downtown, 28 Liberty, which used to be one mm-hmm. Chase Manhattan. It has a 60th floor. Uh, it's going to be a, a bar lounge and amazing event space. And I'm helping them with the strategy of the development of that. I love that. But our notion of the finest and grandest has changed, right? Mm-hmm. And I happen to lean towards more naturalistic cooking. I'm not really interested in soluble fiber or nitrogen in, infused anything or foams or all that stuff. That Molecular gastronomy is a lovely little fad that got people interested in food and doesn't taste very good, but helps you go to the bathroom. So how do I really feel? <laughs> and no, honestly, I have to say, I, I do balance. I have great respect. I am a partner, um, both professionally and personally in some ways, uh, with many, many chefs. But a ripe peach is better than anything they can cook. We have to have humility when we deal with food because we're dealing with nature and nature is bigger than we are. So the reason I live in New York is because so much education and communication and development and excitement and <clears throat> excuse me, restaurant activity is so brilliantly done here really as a benchmark for the world. You know, I worked in Australia and I've worked uh, in other places around the country and around the world. And a New York style restaurant means professional, right? It means you know what you're doing. And I live in Northern California and work there because that's where the food is. It's not, it's farm country that includes wine country, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm very involved in farm trails and I do a radio show out there where I talk to the people who do it, but also people all over the country and all over the world who look at it the same way. So it is, it's, it, it's about what's underneath it. It's about sharing at the table. It's about living. All of, all of life is food. How do You're I really so feel? passionate. I love I it. And you do so much. So here's, here's a question for you. What's, what are the challenges or what are the parts of working with chefs and restaurants and all these businesses and hospitality that you don't like or that you find you know, challenging? Well, all right. First of all, I do like things that are challenging. Okay. Right? I like to work hard. I, 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 I enjoy rigorous effort. I don't enjoy it for its own sake. I enjoy it when it's right. You know how when you exercise... If you do it right with good form, it builds good muscle, right? Mm -hmm. And if you do it the wrong way with bad form, you can hurt yourself. So I like a a rigorous effort, but for good intention and with good form. Uh, You know, sometimes I I find it uh, upsetting and sad when a chef will say to me, yeah, but the, the food I like to cook is not like the food I like to eat. And the food he likes to cook or she, but usually he, uh, (laughs) is so interesting that you can't even eat it. You know what I mean? It's like, this isn't a quiz. It's dinner. And I'm not sitting for four and a half hours. I need to eat and talk and move and live. And it's a, there's, there's great pressure 
uh, balancing those pressures. You know, right now, I think there are probably too many restaurants in America. I think that we're about to have some uh, challenges. And uh, I think that things are getting exponentially better in certain sectors and tougher in others. For example, there are large food companies that have been selling what I refer to as food-like products filled with all kinds of chemicals that are taking the chemicals out, that are going back to the base ingredients and saying, wait, we don't have to do that, right? I love that Kraft Dinner took out all the chemicals and put back in natural ingredients but didn't tell anyone until they had sold 50 million boxes because they were insecure that, that people wouldn't like what it was. It was the food to begin with, guys. So the challenge I have is people start extrapolating and moving away from common sense and from common human knowledge. And the most important thing you can do with food is remember that it's yes or no. It's yes or no. You have to make a business to stay in business, right? You have to, and it's got to be worth it. And that big challenge these days is simple, simple food is the hardest to do. Right? It's the really, really good food from great ingredients is really hard to do and to take care of. It's worth the most, and it's not cheap. So that whole price value thing is always a conversation and always a challenge. Well said. On that note, we're going to take another break. We'll come back and talk more with Clark. We're actually going to do my speed round game and industry news discussion. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Clark Wolf. It's time for my speed round game. So what this is, is I'm going to name a couple things. It's an either-or situation. You pick your preference. Okay. Are you ready? Let's see. Can I develop having an opinion? I think it's too late. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) I think you're going to be great at this. Okay. Okay. Here we go. Eat in or eat out? Yes. Got it. Wine, beer, cocktail, or mocktail? Oh, uh, uh, fresh fruit juice. I, I don't want imitation anything. I don't eat Satan. You know, that thing called Satan. I call it Satan. Yeah, no, no, yeah, yeah. No, add we, fresh fruit juice into this. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Have a tasting menu or a la carte? Um, I don't even like the word a la carte. Uh, I like to decide what I'm going to eat. Once in a while, a tasting menu, but generally speaking, I like to decide what I'm going to eat. Why don't you like the word a la carte? 
It's uh, because we don't eat that way anymore. A la carte meat kind of says one of those and one of those and one of those, and it goes in from the cart, right? It's from uh, the French Mm -hmm. card, right? And we don't eat that way. I mean, I tend to start with a side of uh, sautéed Brussels sprouts with bacon. You know what I mean? And that's my first course, and it's actually a side. So I'm just, I'm like more Americans than ever before. People like to eat what they want to eat, what their eyes and what their body tells them. And I also, you'll be shocked by this, I now eat my main meal usually in the middle of the day, wherever I am, even in New York, because it's better for your body. Yeah, and that's, right? I mean, that's European. That's the, uh, uh, To me, that's what I think of. Like lunch, they typically, it, is a bigger meal, and here in the U.S., it's more dinner. It's actually timeless. Okay. Right? It's actually timeless. Yes. Yeah. Go ahead. More, okay. more, more. Yeah, I like yeah. this. I we like have this. more speed oh, okay. and go in here and more questions. Okay. okay. Small plates or large plates? Um, shaking his head. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure what that means. You're, you're, you're talking to, about specific terms, and the thing is that I don't really care because it, as long as they're good, if it's a large plate, I may well share it with three people. Okay. Just a game. Yeah, it's just a game. <laughs> just, just like dinner, it's fine. How about communal table or chef's counter? Oh, I love them both very much, actually. I think okay. yeah, Americans are, have trouble sharing, but I love that we're beginning to learn how to share space. You know, Europeans do. But if you put... Um, like in a lounge, if you don't split up the little coffee tables in front into three little boxes, then two people won't sit on the couch. I mean, it's crazy. Americans do not share well. They're learning. And, you know, the chef's counter is always wonderful, right? It keeps their uh, language cleaner. (laughs) And the floor cleaner. Good point. Yeah. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? You know, again, I think that in some cases, Danny Meyer is doing some wonderful stuff. I like that kind of experience. I think it's wonderful. But Go to Europe. It, it, you don't have to choose. Each, each mm-hmm. place does what's right for them. You know what I mean? And so in some cases, I think it's just perfect. Have it be included, and then you just add a little something if it was brilliant. In other cases, if it's a casual cafe, I think tipping is just fine. So I, I'm for both in the right situation. Okay. How about as far as some, some trends I'm noticing these days? Yeah. Are you more into avocado toast or pokey? Oh, yeah. You know, pokey is just really uh, rough cut tartare right but it's <laughs> I, become oh, a big trend well here you see it's it's not a trend it's it's a, a representation of a bunch of trends right okay. it's a representation of we, we've been wanting to find yet another way to eat raw fish we love raw fish thank heavens it's wonderful uh we're discovering that we have other states of the union and that you know we we tend to rotate poke is wonderful it's it's not a new thing you know what i mean if you're from the west coast you, you you've been having it forever and if you're a new yorker you know chopped raw fish very very well and avocado avocado toast is my life I mean, it's the best thing ever. Okay. How about writing or giving lectures or hosting a radio show? Yes, I do all those. Yes, Uh, I know. No preference. Okay, two more. Cheese plate or dessert? Oh, cheese plate without question. I'm, you know, I wrote a book about American cheeses for Simon & Schuster. I'm a Californian, so I'd rather have fruit than a a sugary sweet thing. I, I don't have much of a sweet tooth. Okay. Last one. Manhattan, Brooklyn, or Sonoma County? Oh, Oh, I, I, I refuse, as you can tell, to, to choose. That. No, yeah. no, I'll answer. I, I love Manhattan for its life. I love Brooklyn for the feel and the sense that something might happen and get created. And I love Sonoma County because that's where the food is and those people work hard. That was a fantastic speed round, I have to say. <laughs> I love your answers. I lost two pounds. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so industry news. This big announcement yesterday in the New York Times, off the menu column by Florence Fabricant. People on the move, Kate Crater, 
Kate Crater, who has been on my show, who yeah. I love. Yeah. She's been with Food & Wine Magazine for more than 20 years. Yeah. She is leaving to go to Bloomberg Pursuits, and she will be reporting on restaurant chefs and food destinations for digital, print, television, and radio. Here's what I love about it. What I love is... People say that there's no media that's any good anymore. There's no structure. It's not true. I mean, Adam Sachs was, was writing for Food and Wine and for all these places, and, and now he's at Savour. Adam Rappaport started at Time Out. This woman has been working hard, learning about chefs for a certain market in a certain way, but it's broad and deep at, a, at an upper level. The fact that she's going to Bloomberg means... Bloomberg's going to have even better coverage of restaurants. I like that business people are going to learn more. I mean, I, I, I thought it was very amusing when Bloomberg started. You know what I mean? Wall mm-hmm. Street Journal has never done good restaurant coverage at all. Bless their hearts. Uh, they're good at wine, but they, they're they always looking for a bargain, right? Bloomberg, I wasn't sure what they were going to do, but they've had some very good people writing because it, they're not just interested in the uh, business of food. They want a good experience. And I think she's going to bring them to the next level. I think what's happening in the graduation class of uh, 2000, whatever this is, is that people are moving around and it, it reminds us there's talent out there, not just uh, in its spot, but being developed constantly. And it makes me very happy. Yeah, no, it's exciting. I mean, it was I, I was surprised to see it. But then again, I don't know. There's a lot of change happening. I mean... Food and Wine has a, a new editor, yeah, Dana Mutamid, yeah. and Dana Dana's now with the Chefs Club. Yeah. And um, and actually, Tajal Rayo, who was the reviewer for Bloomberg, yep. and she's amazing. She's now with the New York Times at the New York Times. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, what's happening is again these these training grounds. I, in New York, publications used to kind of talk to each other. The Times talked to New York Magazine. New York Magazine talked to Newsday. Remember Newsday? Anyway. Um, it, it doesn't happen anymore. It's, they're, they're all kind of independent things. But we are part of a world. We are part of a construct and a series of cultures that go together. And the fact that food media allows people to learn about something over here and then offer it in slightly new ways and broader uh, venues is marvelous. And I think that there's, there's real talent out there. I love that Bill Addison is at Eater.com mm-hmm. nationally. Yeah. I mean, I, I've had, it, it's, it's a pleasure. We have people who know what they're talking about. I agree. And I love Kate. I wish her very, very much, you know, amazing things at this new chapter in her life. It's it's a big move. Um, and good for Bloomberg. Yeah. <laughs> okay, another news story, a little different, uh, that came out yesterday. On Grub Street, they had Zagat is changing the way it rates restaurants. And this article is by Chris Car- Crowley. So this is since Zagat was started long time ago. Um, they've always used a rating system of on 30-point scale, and they're decided to get rid of it. They're going to go to a five-point scale system with decimal points. Ooh, decimal points. Yeah, Yay. yeah they're adding in the decimals. So I don't know. What What do you think? Well, uh, you know, I think that, that Zagat is owned by Google. That's what I think. You yeah. know what I mean? And Google does reduce things down to ABC, and, and, and that's fine. It, it doesn't surprise me. It's... It, actually allows somebody else to go out there and start something. You know, when, when Zagat started, he had a piece of paper and people would fill it out and they were lawyers and doctors and professionals and they filled it out with their fountain pens. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then it went online and that person, that lawyer, that doctor didn't do it anymore. Their assistant did, their nurse did. It was interesting. And it all changed in a way that Zagat didn't even really understand. It grew because we have a desire to, to, to tell each other what's going on, right? It's the best kind of gossip. Oh my gosh, I had this. We all kind of liked the Zagat number guide because it was nuanced. And people who really love fine food 
love a nuance, right? And look at wine. Wine is usually done at 100 points. And that, that whole area between the middle to high 80s and the very, very top is precious territory to anybody who works in wine or sells it. So this is going to make it more broad-based. It means that somebody else could probably go out there and go back to a 20 or 30-point methodology and uh, get some notice. Yeah, well, they also launched a new app to go with it, uh, which I, I think is yeah, – I was check I downloaded it, and um, it's great. I think it's, it's easier to find restaurants. It's by location, I feel. Um, it's good. So I think they're, you know, they're up in the game getting – Getting more advanced with technology, and yeah, being owned by Google doesn't really hurt. Doesn't counts. hurt. Yeah, it doesn't. <laughs> no, listen, I want I want the technology to be really good, but I really want the information to be right, good. Right. Which is why I, for the most part, people don't read one source. Right. I mean, if you really care about the food, you read two or three or four. And you look, you look at all of them. You look at this reviewer, the local reviewer, the national one, the regional one, and you overlay them, and then you ask three friends who you trust more than you do the newspaper. Right. Yeah, well, I don't know. I have a hard time. Like for me, I read so much, and I'm aware, and I'm because I'm in it. I'm in the industry, and I wonder people not in the industry. Maybe they do have their go-to, and they only read Zagat. Uh, no, nobody only does one thing ever. Okay. No, no, absolutely, no, no. <laughs> there was a time though. You're you're not wrong. I mean, in yeah, New York exactly. City, when I first moved here, people would read the New York Times. Or New York Magazine. They were not the same person. They were two different people. Right. And they would come into the store or restaurant with that article in their hand and order that thing. And that's it. You yeah. know what people do now? They bring in their phone and they show Instagram and they show up a picture of avocado toast and they want, I want this. Yeah. Well, yeah. then climb in your phone, lady. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, uh, it's... It, w- w- a virtual experience is not delicious, but I think that we gather information a lot more than we ever did. I think millennials and boomers are more similar to those folks in between. I'm a boomer and I work with a lot, with a lot of millennials. We both want a lot of information and we want to make decisions for ourselves and we want a personal engagement. It's good to be quick with the information, but it needs to have depth. Agreed. Okay. We're going to take another break before we do. I just want to, let people know it is NYC Restaurant Week happening now. It's not even week, it's weeks. Began on July 25th. It goes till August 19th. This is three courses. You can get $29 lunch or $42 dinner. There's hundreds of restaurants participating in New York City. You can go to nycgo.com to find out more and check out those restaurants. So stay with us. Uh, one more break and then come back. I'm going to do my solo dining experience. This is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. This is the story of men and women who shed not only their clothes, but also their...
Welcome back to All in the Industry and Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. It's time for my solo dining experience. This week, it's at Shia. Here's the rundown. The location, 4213 Magazine Street in New Orleans, Louisiana. The concept, modern Israeli cuisine. The chef and owner, Alan Shia. Why did I go? Because I was in NOLA for Tales of a Cocktail, and how could I not check out the town's most acclaimed new restaurant? My experience. So my dinner plans changed at the last minute, so I Ubered down to Shia. Or maybe it's up. I'm not sure. When I arrived, I was quoted an hour wait, but luckily, after about 15 minutes, a seat opened up at the bar. And actually, two seats opened up, and another Tales attendee came in, who I learned was the owner of the Green Hat Gin, based in D.C., and he sat down next to me. So we struck up a conversation and ended up sharing dishes, which was great, as it's a very shareable menu. What did I get? So I had the hummus with soft-cooked egg with house-made pita, Moroccan carrots, and kibbe naya, which is beef and lamb tartare. I also had tastes of my new friends foie gras, lamb kebabs, baba ganoush, and tabouille. My take? Savory comfort food with rich flavors. The bread was so fresh and fabulous dipping in the hummus, which had a little heat from the harissa. The tartare was excellent, and all of my bites I really enjoyed. The ambiance. Casual yet modern with an enclosed outdoor space in the back. It's perfect for sharing plates with friends, old or new. Interesting tidbit. Among Shia's accolades are Best New Restaurant in America by Esquire Magazine and the James Beard Awards. Personal fun fact. I initially met Alan Shia at South Beach Wine and Food Festival a few years ago. I have had his food since at many events across the country, from Charleston Wine and Food Festival to a pop-up here in Bushwick at the Brooklyn Bread Lab. He's a very nice guy, and he certainly can cook. Another personal fun fact, at Shia, I ran into Alad Zvi of Broken Shaker and 27 Restaurant in Miami, where I've also dined solo on wonderful Israeli cuisine. So the cost was $36, not including tax and gratuity. Would I go back? Yes, I would. Website is ShiaRestaurant.com. Okay, so it's time for the final question. <laughs> okay. Are you ready? <laughs> I'll do my best. Okay, so my next guest is Francine Cohn. She's the founder and editor-in-chief of Inside F&B, an online trade magazine that covers the restaurant covers the business of food, beverage, and hospitality. So Francine just produced a Chocano Pisco event down at Tales of a Cocktail, and my show next week is going to be all about Tales of a Cocktail. So, um, Clark, can you ask a question for Francine? Yes. Uh, you know, I have been to Lima, Peru twice, and the first time I was there, I was stuck at the Kempinski Hotel, five-star hotel, in the lobby, by myself, drinking Pisco Sours, listening to ABBA. So I guess I should ask the question... Besides the ABBA question, of course, are they still popular there? Has, glo- <laughs> has global warning, has climate change really had an impact on the ingredients and the cuisine of Peru? Because there are more things that we love that are from Lima and that area, all kinds of potatoes, all kinds of fish and all kinds of peppers. Has it had an impact the way uh, it has in other parts of the world? I'm that's a pretty good question, yeah, huh? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I can't wait to see how she answers it. Well, you know, it's interesting because so many uh, uh, were finding that various species are moving to other places. There were so many things there. Are they moving up? Are we going to suddenly have all kinds of things off the coast of Mexico and Southern California that they used to? I mean, I know that when I'm in, in, in New York, there are so many more species of fish in the Atlantic Ocean that we eat here. In California, there are many fewer. Uh, they're great. I love them, uh, and I know them well, but there are fewer. 
and that has to do with the, the temperature of the water and the movement and all the rest of it. So I'm dying to know if, if global warming is doing something crazy to the ingredients of Peru. I'm going to find out. So people stay tuned next week so you can hear the answer. And that's the show. So thank you so much. I'm so impressed with your career, and um, you've done so much for the industry. So Well, I love it, and I love the people that I get to work with. You know, to me, success is doing good work with great people, and uh, I feel great, grateful and uh, hungry. <laughs> yeah, ditto. So I've been talking to Clark Wolf of Clark Wolf Company. He's based in New York City and Sonoma County. And it's, he has a food and restaurant consulting firm that you can find more information about at ClarkWolfCompany.com. He's on Twitter at ClarkWolfSays and Instagram at ClarkWolf. Yeah, you, you call me, say hello. I mean, I like to talk to people in the industry. I'm, uh, I, I was taught to be generous with my time, if I can be, by the best people there are. Awesome. You can follow me on social media. I'm at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry, and my websites are BayerPublicRelations.com and SherryBayer.com. As a reminder, all of our shows are archived at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We are also on Stitcher and on iTunes, so you can download us anywhere, anytime. Thanks always to my engineer, Pierre, and again to Clark. Tune in next week for my Tales of a Cocktail recap show with Francine Cohn. I'm also going to, I did an interview with Samantha Carroll and Bradley Andrews of Sakale Restaurant in New Orleans. So that will be on the show. I'm Sherry Bayer. Thanks for being part of All in the Industry. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Everybody, everybody.